Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Uh, We have a guest today to talk to us about, I guess, what is the number one is that fair to say health concern for people as they age? I would definitely say so. It may not be the number one cause of death, but I would say it's the number one thing people worry about as they that age. It impacts your quality of life. Yeah, and what I'm talking about is Alzheimer's disease. So we have an authority in this field. One of the advantages, incidentally, of being in St. Louis to do this show is that we have access to Washington University. And those of you who don't know, Washington University is probably one of the is one of the res- most respected institutions for research on the planet. World renowned. Uh, world renowned. Hands and down. So we have access to these uh, these physicians and researchers who are the best in their fields and and can tell us about cutting-edge things going on. So we've kind of levered those relationships, and uh, we have on today a guest that I think you'll find very informative to talk about this topic. Why don't you do an introduction. Yes, we have Dr. Suzanne Schindler. Uh, She's a neurologist with Washington University and a researcher. Dr. Schindler, thank you for coming on Life's Third Act. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Let me start by um, expressing a frustration about Alzheimer's research, um, is that I've got to where I'm not interested anymore. This isn't entirely true. I, I've gotten to where when I pick up a newspaper uh, or go to a website, more likely, and yeah, I'm reading, I'm reading an article about something new on Alzheimer's. It generally relates to uh, being able to diagnose it sooner or better. And I know that you're one of the best in the field regarding this, and this is an area we're going to talk about. But I still want to express the frustration that I'm wanting to to pick up an article or to read an article about solutions. And instead, I'm hearing more about diagnosis. Now, I know you have to diagnose to solve, but it just seems that we're still short of of the really exciting things in the field. Persuade me why what you're doing is going to be relevant to those of us who want to fix the problem, which I think would be everybody with it. Um, Yes, well, first of all, I would say that I share your frustration because I see patients. And unfortunately, my patients with Alzheimer's disease, uh, many times I see them once a year and every time they come to see me, they're a little worse. And that's that's really a a terrible thing for them and their family, but but also for me as a physician, because it makes you um, feel kind of helpless that you can't can't make a, a change and we're all working very hard and are very highly motivated to to get to those treatments that you're talking about so so we're frustrated too and we see the <laughs> I see patients every week that are just devastated by this disease so but why is this so, so hard why is this so hard to move forward on explain a little bit about it well, the brain's very complicated, and um, in in terms of you know what is Alzheimer's disease. So the the brain changes of Alzheimer's disease start about twenty years before people have any symptoms. So by the time you start becoming more forgetful and having a decline in your function, 
this has been going on for a long time. And we, we know that by the time people have symptoms that they've had a lot of damage, unfortunately, to their brains. And, and it turns out that once the brain is damaged, it's very difficult to, to fix it. They're just too far gone. In, in some ways, I, I hope that's not completely true. I, I think um, people who maybe present with the very earliest symptoms, we may be able to slow things down. But um, yeah, I think there is some truth to that, that by the time people have more advanced dementia, we, we just don't have the really ability that the brain has just been damaged kind of beyond what we can repair. But you were asking about or mentioning about diagnostics. So we've made tremendous advances in, in diagnostics, as you were mentioning, and uh, Washington University actually developed the first blood test for Alzheimer's disease, which we are um, using sometimes now in, in select patients. Why? And, why just in select patients? Well, that's a really good question too. Um, at this point, it's because, uh, well, there's a variety of reasons, but but one is that uh, insurance won't pay for it, and it costs a thousand two hundred fifty dollars. Um, and, and really the bigger reason is what you were alluding to initially, which is we don't have treatments. So if we do a test and it's positive, there's not necessarily something that I can tell you that would be different. Um, so that makes it uh, less compelling to spend that money to get a clear diagnosis. Um, but I do think the diagnostics are really important. And this is why, um, because we are actually making a lot of progress on developing new treatments. And uh, you, you probably heard about all the um, issues with the drug that was approved this last year, at yeah. Health, right. Medicaid, which was highly controversial. The, uh, I guess in a nutshell, the issue is that the drug company stopped the studies early because they, it didn't look like the drugs were working. And then when they came back, they're like, oh, maybe there's something there. Um, but by that point, um, the study, you know, really couldn't couldn't be performed as it should have been, and so it was really hard to interpret the results. And basically, we don't know whether the drug worked or not. So this is the one that Medicaid has said it will only pay for people who are participating in experiments or. That's studies. exactly right. Yeah. So they're they're only providing it for people who are in clinical trials because really we don't know whether it works or not in terms of providing a clinical benefit, so slowing down dementia symptoms. But there are several other drugs that are in late stages of clinical trials, and they look very promising. And I think the drug companies have had the advantage of, of learning from what happened to, to Adahelm and Adakanumab, and I think they will finish the trials, and we will know whether the drugs actually work or not. Um, so far, I think the data looks pretty promising, at least what they've presented. Right. But the but the incrementalism, though, meaning uh, what, you know, a success or a win seems to be defined as an additional six months of life or maybe a year. You know, you're not seeing the sort of wins you associate with a cure, even if we don't use the cure, but five years, you know, is substantial. But anything more than, right. than you know, definitions of months, yeah, no, it's it's not very satisfying. Um, and I think part of this is uh, what we were 
talking about before that by the time people have symptoms that a lot of damage has been done. So I think as long as we're targeting people who already have symptoms, the best we may be able to do is to slow things down. So this raises though, this sounds like your best defense then for saying that I can diagnose very early or I'm doing research that now allows us to diagnose very early is, I mean, that's a powerful argument if it means that that, yeah, you're fixable because we got to it early enough. and Before there's much damage. Yeah. Right, and, right. And, and so you're... That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so I, I think that the big uh, cures uh, that, that we want to see, I, I think they may not happen with people who already have symptoms. I think the big uh, benefits that we may be able to achieve will happen when we give, when we can... Uh, identify people who have early brain changes before a lot of damage has been done and start them on the medications before they have symptoms. And there are clinical trials going on right now that are doing exactly that. So they're taking cognitively normal older individuals and doing tests to detect the the early brain changes of Alzheimer's disease. And if people have them, they're starting them on a drug and then following them to see if that that staves off dementia. And I I think that that is much more promising in terms of having a a real benefit as compared to waiting until people have symptoms to treat them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Except for the point that you just made. I would think that people who have this would not want a diagnosis. I'm sure some would, but I suspect a majority would not want a diagnosis because all it means is that now you you know you know where you're headed and it's not a very you know and happy situation and so you know is it what good does it do if it can't be treated but but again the the response to that is what you just said where if it's caught early enough but for the, for those many who have symptoms how many of them really want to know well and two a lot of people might be blowing it off oh it's just you know, short-term memory problem. It's not anything, you know, we all, as we get older, we all, you know, get forgetful and they may blow it off that that's all it is and not realize it's something more serious. But again, it only matters, it doesn't matter if they blow it off unless it's yeah. early enough to do something about it. Is yeah, that what you're and saying? actually, well, there's a, a, a number of issues. So uh, something that's actually really important is that of the patients who come to see me who typically had six months or more of consistent decline in their memory and thinking, that probably only half of them have a neurological condition. So many of them have things like sleep apnea, which can cause um, mild but very consistent declines in memory and thinking. Um, Many of them are taking medications that impair cognition Um, And many of them have other medical conditions that can affect memory and thinking. So while I can't at this point cure Alzheimer's disease, a lot of my patients don't have Alzheimer's disease. They have other things that are affecting their memory and thinking. And so I can help them by diagnosing them with these other disorders, and we can often uh, help with those. Now, uh, the patients that do have Alzheimer's disease, you're right. Um, So some of them don't really want a a diagnosis because uh, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease carries a stigma with it. Mm -hmm. 
And then there are other people who really want to know, and they really want to know because they expect that it will affect their future planning. Like yeah. Maybe they will move to live closer to their children, or they'll get a ranch house instead of a, a two-story, or or make other life decisions. Yeah, I can see that. What may happen in the future. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, really a tremendous range of whether people want to know or not. Yeah. And as a as a clinician, my my job is to help people answer the questions they have. Um, and and so obviously, I if they don't want to know, then I wouldn't do specific testing for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and if they really do want to know, um, I try to to help them get an answer. So when people think about uh, aging and memory. Um, of course, you know, the big, bad, terrible thing in, in their mind is, of course, the possibility of Alzheimer's. But putting that aside for a moment, as you point out, there are lots of other explanations. Let's talk about other causes of dementia um, that that may not be attributable to the specific things you mentioned. There are forms of dementia that are not Alzheimer's. Um, is, there, is there treatment for those? First of all, what are some of those things? And is there treatment for those? Well, there's many, many other causes. Um, some that we see fairly frequently in our clinic are uh, things such as vascular dementia. So people have had strokes in areas of the brain that affect their memory and thinking. Okay. If someone has strokes, then uh, there are things that we do to prevent them from having future strokes. So for example, we typically start them on an aspirin and a statin and um, look to see if they have uh, problems with their arteries and their neck. Um, so we can do other sort of interventions. There's also disorders such as dementia with Lewy bodies. And uh, interestingly, dementia with Lewy bodies often responds quite well, at least initially to a medication that we, we often use to treat Alzheimer's disease. So the medication is called Denepazil. And many of my patients uh, who have dementia with Lewy bodies have, have really uh, had a marked improvement at least for a couple of years when taking that medication. And what explain is that? what that is. Yeah. yeah, I'm not real familiar with that. Sure. So this is a medication that's been around for... No, no, no the, 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 the condition. The disease. Oh, the, just... oh, I see. Dementia with Lewy bodies. So... Um, Alzheimer's disease is characterized by amyloid plaques and tau tangles in the brain, but there's other neurological disorders that have other proteins in the brain. Dementia with Lewy bodies has something called Lewy bodies in the brain, and uh, it can look quite similar to Alzheimer's disease in, in some cases. Uh, many patients also have movement disorder symptoms similar to what you might see in Parkinson's disease, and they often have problems with, uh, they perceive it as problems with their vision. Um, it can be a little bit more complex than that, but basically they can't figure out where things are at in space or see things uh, the way they, they really are. Um, and uh, they sometimes have hallucinations. So they'll see animals or children who, who aren't there and they really see them and they can have um, other, other issues as well. Um, but it can sometimes look like Alzheimer's disease, at least uh, in the early stages. And so is it, but it's more fixable. Well, 
still, I, it responds to treatment at least initially, but it is still a progressive neurological illness. I'm curious, um, is it ever confused or misdiagnosed with schizophrenia? Because when you talk about seeing things that aren't there, that's a symptom. Does that ever happen? So I, I, I suppose that that could happen. Um, typically, people uh, do not present with new hallucinations in their 60s or 70s. That happens earlier in life if it's going to surface. Okay, gotcha. But that's also associated with Parkinson's disease. Is that true? Um, Yes. So uh, there is kind of a continuum between Parkinson's disease and dementia with Lewy bodies. Um, So Parkinson's disease is much more connected to movement abnormalities. So you think about the tremor and the rigidity and shuffling gait and and, uh, falls. Mm -hmm issues like that. And uh, dementia with Lewy bodies overlaps with that, but it has more of the cognitive symptoms. Um, So it can look more similar to Alzheimer's disease, but then it has these additional features of um, often hallucinations and um, some other, some other issues. So when you talk about things such as stroke, where there's damage to, to neuro cells, I assume, um, I've heard much made about this thing called neuroplasticity, where apparently the brain has the ability to rewire itself. Can is how much can it compensate for that damage? How much is realistic to expect? So that's a great question, and and it's really interesting. During a neurology residency, we see a lot of patients with strokes, and it's remarkable how people can have a stroke in one part of their brain. And that part of the brain is is no longer functional, but you come to see them over a period of days to weeks, and uh, oftentimes a lot of that function recovers um, because the rest of their brain is healthy and it's kind of rewiring uh, the functions that were previously in that area. Now, now often that's not complete, so uh, many stroke patients don't get back 100% of their function, but they often get back some and sometimes a lot. So so it, it's uh, very real and we see it all the time um, following stroke that people improve despite definitely having a significant area of brain damage. Now, I guess yeah. the question would be why, why doesn't that happen with Alzheimer's disease? The, the problem with Alzheimer's disease is, is basically the whole brain is involved in sick. And so um, you just can't rewire um, as well. When I read an article about, about the theory underlying some of these medications that were being developed, um, you know, one theory seemed pretty sound to me, but it was greeted as a dubious idea. And that was that if you have a medication that prevents or even diminishes the plaque formation, uh, that that would solve the problem of of Alzheimer's. But that seemed to be treated with some skepticism. I thought it was apparent that the problem was the plaque. Is that not true? Amyloid plaque, whatever it's called. Yeah, so... Also, so amyloid is uh, necessary to cause Alzheimer's disease, but it's not sufficient by itself. Um, and what I mean by that is if you don't have amyloid plaques in your brain, you don't have Alzheimer's disease by, by definition. 
But on the other hand, there are many people who have uh, amyloid plaques in their brain, sometimes relatively high levels of amyloid plaques, but are still cognitively normal. Now we know the higher the levels those uh, get, the, the more likely you are to develop symptoms. But it seems that there are other things that are involved that uh, lead to the symptoms. Um, and I think that the amyloid by itself is bad for the brain and it leads to um, kind of reactions. Well, when you uh, look at an image, I mean, it's so shocking. It's hard to imagine. It's like if somebody who's been smoking, they'd show you a picture of the lung and you'd say, obviously, that's bad. Right. And and when you look at the pictures of the plaque of the brain, you think, well, gee, this must be obviously terrible for thought, for neuro neurology or no? No, I, I think the plaques are definitely bad. And uh, certainly we can see through lots of experiments um, in humans and mice and cells that the amyloid appears toxic, but then uh, the, the response of the cells to the amyloid also kind of perpetuates a cycle of, of toxicity. So it's, it's not just the amyloid, but it's the reaction to the amyloid that may cause some of the damage. I think that the reason why some people are, are skeptical of amyloid being the, the key feature of Alzheimer's is just because there are these people who have a lot of amyloid in their brain that are cognitively normal. So that's, I, that's the primary reason for the skepticism. Um, and there's also another protein that's important in, in Alzheimer's disease called tau, and it seems that um, tau, we're still trying to understand exactly what's going on with tau, but it seems that it misfolds perhaps in response to the amyloid plaques. And uh, it occurs later in the disease and it seems to be more associated with symptoms. So, um, you know, it's just complicated. And whenever things are complicated, people kind of debate each other about what's the most important thing. Uh, so no, I just want to know, does one's lifestyle, is there any connection uh, with, you know, who develops Alzheimer's? Like, say, someone that abused alcohol, drugs, uh, you know, their diet, smoking. Is there any thought about that? Yes. So we know that people who have a lot of vascular risk factors, for example, um, that they are at higher risk for dementia and not just Alzheimer's disease, but dementia from other causes like strokes as well. However, I see lots of patients who have lived very healthy lives who still end up getting Alzheimer's disease. So is this so, an environmental component or is it a genetic component that explains that situation? Uh, so it's both. Um, and certainly there have been many studies done of the genetics of Alzheimer's disease and genetics does play a significant role. Um, but there are other factors. Uh, some of them are environmental, uh, lifestyle factors, what other medical conditions you have, for example. Um, but it's, it's really uh, the interaction of both. And then sometimes people get it even despite having no family history and a very healthy lifestyle. So bad luck. So so would you call it epigenetic? That's a phrase I hear a lot. Is that meaning that there has to be apparently the genetic potential, but it'll only occur if certain factors appear in their lives or circumstances? 
Um, I wouldn't say that it's that strong. I would say that genetics uh, play as a significant, they're significant risk factors. But but again, we find people who do not have genetic risk factors who, who get it. So it's an interaction of environment and genetics and probably some some things we don't totally we understand. Don't know. Yeah. Uh, what about, I've read studies that have suggested that people who are more educated tend to be less vulnerable to some of these uh, cognitive challenges, forms yeah. of dementia. What is that true, number one? Doing things to keep your mind sharp. Well, yeah. Well, let's first start with, is that true? But number two is, yeah, what would be the explanation? Would it be that these people who have college degrees, you know, more fully develop their brains early on? Yes. Yeah, so there certainly uh, is research supporting that idea that higher levels of education uh, are somewhat protective against dementia. And we sometimes talk about this concept of cognitive reserve, which is kind of, I, I guess, like a, in, maybe in sports, being athletic, being in good shape. So if you are well-educated, if you're cognitively active, that helps. Um, and that potentially can can help uh, protect you to some degree from dementia. One, one other issue, though, is, is just that people might be kind of starting from a higher baseline level of function. And so, uh, well, there's, I guess, a couple of things that could happen. One thing is that they may have a lower tolerance uh, for, for a decline. So some of my very highly educated patients uh, come in with very mild symptoms, but it's a significant change for them. Um, and then uh, on the other hand, um, I have uh, kind of other patients who, who, you know, have had a significant change, but because they're still able to do all of their activities, um, they, they haven't come in to, to see anyone. Um, so they, people have very different kind of thresholds for when they seek care. Uh, but yes, uh, in, in response to your question, I, I think that cognitive stimulation does help. And I always recommend that my patients remain cognitively active. And, and I think I, I definitely see a change since the pandemic started, where a lot of people have stayed home and not interacted with friends and mm -hmm. family. And a lot of people who have not had interactions have, have really declined over the last couple of years, which is really unfortunate. So I'm trying to encourage people to try to start up their lives again. Um, obviously, the pandemic's been very difficult for older individuals because they've been at highest risk for getting severe COVID. Um, so they've had to take precautions, but it's it's just had so many consequences for for people in right. terms of activities and socialization. Do you think that that the the socialization factor, which seems to be consistently pointed to as a very positive thing to ward off cognitive decline, I, some I guess it would suggest that 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 has some emotional uh, or psychological foundation. But I, I wonder to what extent, though, that that it employs a range of the brain of neural cells or you know parts of the brain that are really more varied and diverse than say for example a crossword puzzle i mean just being among people and dealing with the variety of things that is called upon for social interaction does that employ 
perhaps more areas of the brain than than sitting down and doing math? I think that it can. Yes. Um, I mean, just having a conversation with the two of you, um, I I really have to think hard about uh, what you're saying and what I think about it. And, um, you know, just just having a conversation with people is is quite a mental exercise. Um, And I think crosswords are great. Reading is great. But socialization is is very stimulating to the brain. And uh, another thing about socialization and, and cognitive stimulation generally that is important is novelty. So a lot of times people will do crossword puzzles, but they'll do one crossword puzzle for a day for years. And in a lot of ways, that's not as stimulating because it's the same thing they've been doing for years. And really something that stimulates the brain is doing something brand new that you've never done before and having Trying a challenge. new things, right. Exactly, exactly. And and a lot of people don't do that as much. And I think that's something that people might benefit from if they, they try new things. Yeah, I wonder if there's an analogy to like, you know, hermesis. I think that's what it's called. Where, are you familiar with that word? No. I, uh, think- I, I, I think it's where... Uh, you you shock the system and you do things that your body, these people who are longevity experts, which I kind of read a little bit about this topic, but mm-hmm. they argue mm-hmm. that that by doing things that 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 stun your body, like occasional mm-hmm. fasting, like, um, you know, doing a, a physical exercise, it can even be true for people who work out in a gym, that, that what you described, doing the same exercise the same way for weeks, they they complain was gee I'm seeing no physical response, and it's because of I, maybe it's the same factors and and so when you shake it all up regularly and kind of shock the body, that it stimulates this response that you wouldn't otherwise get. It sounds like the same principle. Yeah, and and that's actually I I. Uh, I I'm not not so familiar with that word, but we we certainly have that principle in neuroscience generally. Um, and and so, for example, in stroke models, um, if you do kind of a uh, a mini stroke uh, in a in an animal model, and then a bigger stroke, the the mini stroke can in some ways be protective. So your your body kind of uh, learns to adapt, I guess, um, and and that can protect you from further insults. So, um, so yeah, but I, I do think that novelty is, is helpful. People tend to avoid it in some circumstances, but it, it may be a good thing to seek out if you really want to stay stimulated. So is it possible to, do you believe to slow down putting aside medication, which we're all hopeful on the medication front that some miracle drugs going to come along, but do you, what do you notice are the common denominators among those of your patients who have uh, a dementia? Certainly, we can talk about Alzheimer's, but maybe other dementias. Um, what separates those who seem to to last surprisingly long uh, versus those who perhaps deteriorate more quickly? Is there a pattern between the longest lived or the best performing versus those who are least? Um, yeah, I, I I think there is. So uh, I would say that the, probably the number one thing is uh, family and social support and hmm. just having someone that you live with who cares about you and um, make sure that your your needs are met. Uh, 
that's uh, hugely important. Um, and then uh, another factor is just general overall health. So in a lot of my patients who have dementia, obviously the, the dementia creates a lot of problems, but then they get secondary problems. So they have falls, they have urinary tract infections and other issues, and that really accelerates the decline. Um, and then um, maybe a third factor would be uh, more lifestyle factors like a diet and exercise level of activity, I think is really important. Um, and many of my patients who, who do well, who, who have dementia, but uh, progress very slowly, they exercise daily, um, they eat a healthy diet, they interact with their family and friends frequently. Um, so yes, I, I think there there is a clear pattern. My patients that don't do as well are the ones who, who often don't have family support, who are in poor right. health, um, who uh, unfortunately often sit in front of the TV all day um, and they just do not tend to do well. Do your patients tend to, um, maybe I should put it differently, do you tend to work um, cooperatively with a psychiatrist often to deal with uh, patients who, I guess, not uncommonly may be inclined to depression or anxiety? Is it, Or do you fulfill that role? So it's a combination of both. So if it's relatively uh, easy easy to treat, then I will do it myself. And many of my patients have lower level levels of anxiety or depression and often respond very well to first-line treatment with, a, for example, a, an, an SSRI-type medication. An antidepressant, uh, you're saying. An antidepressant. So, um, but... Uh, especially my patients who have a long history of severe depression and anxiety. Uh, so it's been a factor their whole life. And, and now they have dementia on top of that. Those are the cases where often it's more difficult to control their mood and a psychiatrist can be helpful. Dr. Schindler, I don't know if you saw that special that was done on Glenn Campbell several years ago. And you know, he couldn't remember what happened five minutes before, but he was still able to get out there and perform. And I've heard there is something about, you know, the, the creative side of our brain, such, you know, as music, that we don't lose that necessarily. How do you explain that? Well, the the brain is a really an amazing thing. And uh, I, I think that's very true that there are certain abilities that, in some cases, we've really developed, whether it's singing or some people can still play chess, chess very well, even though they have severe memory problems um, or cards. Um, and for some reason, these abilities persist. And I, I don't know exactly why that is. I suspect that those areas uh, that are involved in those tasks are, are spread out enough across the brain or else they're somehow resilient to the effects of the pathology. Um, but yes, it's it's quite remarkable that sometimes people who have really severe memory and thinking problems have retained, uh, you know, very specialized abilities. Yeah. I, I, I sometimes wonder when I think about people who have, you know, extraordinary abilities in, 
in very specific ways sometimes. And when I think of the chess guys, I think of um, some who I suspect were on the autism spectrum. Uh, do you find that there's any correlation, positively or negatively, with, for example, autism or certain other conditions and the probability of, of Alzheimer's? No correlation? I really haven't seen that. I have noticed that uh, some of my patients who have a history of attention deficit disorder, um, sometimes they can kind of decompensate as they get older and maybe develop some Alzheimer's disease. Um, and they were able to compensate before, so they had ADD and were able to compensate for many years, but it, it seems like uh, at a certain point, they have more difficulty compensating and their ADD can get worse. But with respect to autism, other kinds of autism spectrum issues, I, I haven't really seen that as much. Mm -hmm. Well, we could, uh, we could continue this conversation. I find it fascinating. I wish you were the bearer of more uh, encouraging news in some respects. But as you point out, there's progress being made. No, I, I think there's tremendous progress. I, I realize that it's not coming as fast as we would like, but compared to where we were just 20 years ago, uh, we know so much more about the disease and we're, I think, kind of right on the, on the edge of having all these new treatments potentially uh, approved and available. I think that we will uh, very likely need to start being more aggressive with early diagnosis to really make use of them. But uh, things have really changed tremendously over the last 20 years. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that in the next five years, things will change even more. Uh, I think things like the uh, blood tests for Alzheimer's disease will really help um, to get people diagnosed more promptly. And that's going to be really important if we want to treat them with medications and eventually um, maybe five years from now or 10 years from now, we'll, we'll get to the point where people are screened for Alzheimer's disease uh, when they're cognitively normal. And then if they're positive, they're started on a medication. So I think that's mm -hmm. where things are headed. We're still, we still have a ways to go to get there, but I think we can see this. Um, so, so you would say that you're expectant that in less than 10 years, we will be able to treat effectively meaningfully, uh, people who are diagnosed early? Well, I think, I think that we will be able to diagnose people earlier and start people with early dementia symptoms on treatments. Um, I think that that will likely slow down the progression of the disease. Uh, but I, I think that the, the big game changer that we really all want, which is the, the end of Alzheimer's disease dementia, I think that will only come when we diagnose people before they have symptoms. Um, and, and we're working on that, to diagnose people before they have symptoms and starting them on, on medications. Uh, but I think that's, that's going to be where we make the big leap that we're all looking for. And you think that'll happen in less than 10 years? Well, I think it's possible. Um, and I, I think that, uh, you know, there are drug trials right now going on that are working towards this. Uh, and I, I think 
Yes, I think it's quite possible. It's it's always hard to know before yeah. the drug trial's done whether it's actually going to work or not. But I, I think yeah, it's possible. Uh, you don't inspire great confidence in your answer to that question, <laughs> but I appreciate the fact that you're being brutally frank. Well, I, I don't want to oversell it, um, but it's okay. To I think there's it. reason, <laughs> but I think there's reason for hope. Yeah. Well, you're uh, you're just a wealth of knowledge. Uh, we really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure our viewers did well. We'll have to circle back, uh, maybe in less than ten years, but certainly in ten years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And you're, you know, I'm I'm so impressed. Um, we, you're not the first doctor we've had on, or researcher researcher slash doctor um, that we've had on from WashU and and. Uh, you know, as I said in the introduction, it's just really great to have, you know, Access. people who are leaders in the field yeah. to come on and talk about this research. So we take advantage of it when we can. So we thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. And thanks for the great questions and conversation. It was a, uh, gave me my, my cognitive stimulation for the yeah. day. <laughs> All right. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.